Well, this morning, the message is titled, They All Talked About It. Who's they? Certainly the gospel writers, certainly the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certainly the Old Testament. And some of you this morning may find that as a surprise as we go through that. Um, every Easter or Resurrection Sunday that I know of, I've picked the scripture and have really kind of blown it up and taken it apart so that we could understand different facets of the, resur- uh, the resurrection by the different uh, gospel writers. This morning, I want to give you quality, but I also want to give you quantity. I want to kind of give you more scripture and put it all together so that when you leave here, you can really be convinced in your mind that it wasn't some tenet or doctrine that's negotiable. Now, we see the polls every so often uh, at this time of the year. The world likes to put out their polls about who doesn't believe in the resurrection anymore. And I remember one particular about English clergy, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. Interesting. It's no wonder that Jesus, when he was here, said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That was a great question that the Lord asked. It isn't a surprise that Bible eschatology, as you read the scripture and it talks about end times events, it's not a surprise that it speaks about the degradation of the Christian community. These These are not surprises to us. Even secular society, instead of believing in the resurrection, or actually a lot of people, one of the people I'm going to quote today is Dr. Mark Eastman, who's a medical doctor and an atheist. And through trying to debunk, as many have done before, Christianity, he came to faith and he wrote a book about it. But American culture, even in our culture, um, those who are secularists, instead of looking into the resurrection, is this true? They want to believe in an aberration. And the aberration is zombie culture. Seriously, I mean, you've watched TV, how many people are storing up guns and ammo for the zombie apocalypse? They really believe this stuff. That dead people are going to come up with body parts falling off and, and bang on their house and they've got to take them out. Amazing what people will believe. But if you do the research, God did. He had the power to raise the dead. We see that in the Old Testament and we see that carried through in the New Testament. Now, we live in an age of information, but we also live in an age of disinformation. Anybody could put together a fancy website, throw a few lies on there to their cult or their bend. People just like years ago said, well, if it's on TV, it must be true. Well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Not so. If you're a new believer, I think you're going to be blessed. I want to believe in the resurrection. I don't know enough about it. That's what I want to equip you with this morning. I want you to be inspired. I don't want to give you a fluff message and we go outside and, you know, we do our thing on Easter and we make our turkeys and hams and all that kind of stuff. I want you to be inspired. I want you to understand that every single person in this room can be used by God in a mighty way. That's inspiring. That you have a purpose in life. That God can give you goals. That even back in the day, in the Old Testament, New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus said, the harvest is ripe. But the laborers are few. i got a few people helping me out here. He could certainly use your help. So I really, you know, it's kind of funny because you're coming in here and you're thinking this is a general message, but as you go home and you think about it and you look in the mirror, you're going to say, this is about me. Yes. You can say this morning, it's all about me in the sense that God wants to use you. So we're going to look at nine different ways or reasons why we should believe in the resurrection. Why? Because they all talked about it. So let's jump in. The first reason is, this is a real powerful one, Christ embodied the resurrection. 
You know, you, you may have some people knock at your door and, and cults ask you questions. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Did Jesus ever claim to do this? You're not going to know the answer until you look into the scripture. So number one, the first is that Christ embodied the resurrection. He spoke about the resurrection in general. He spoke about it before he died, preparing his followers. And he spoke about it, obviously, when he was resurrected and before he ascended into heaven. Now, I want to I ask you to turn with me to John 11, starting with verse 20. John 11, 20. This is a long account, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to go through a few verses, but I believe I need to give you some, some background. You know, Jesus loves everyone, but he also had, while he was on the earth, he had friends, those that ministered to him, those who fed him, took him into his home. And he had siblings, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And word got sent out to the Lord that Lazarus was sick. He was going to die. And the, the girls, the sisters, knew that Jesus could stop the sickness as he did all the time. But Jesus was late, right? Jesus very busy, a lot of things on the docket. And as he finally gets over to where they are, it's been four days, and his friend Lazarus has been in a tomb. He's been rotting. And even the sister says, don't roll the stone away. There's, by now there's a stench. She, everybody understood the, the process with the microbes, how the body starts to decay. So Jesus gets there, and here's this exchange with Jesus. Verse 20, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do we ever get frustrated with God? Sure we do. We're human. And I don't want to read too much into it, but she's right, and maybe her feelings were hurt a little bit. You know, we're your friends. I thought this might be a priority. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who has come into the world. So what happens after this is that Jesus goes over to the place where he's buried. He makes them roll the stone away, and he calls them, Lazarus, come forth. With, you know, and, and as soon as that happened, Lazarus gets up from the dead and starts walking to a point where they had to help him to cut off his grave cloths because he was still bound. He was embalmed. But check it out, he wasn't a zombie. <laughs> he didn't have parts hanging off of him. His skin was probably as smooth as a baby's bottom. He took the whole necrotic process and he reversed it. He took all the microbes that had their way in his body because his immune system had died and they started eating him and releasing gases. He reversed all that. He repaired all the tissue. And Lazarus came forth as if he was new. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Jesus not only embodied the resurrection... He could resurrect others, and he says, no one takes my life, I lay it down, and I will take it up again. He resurrected himself. John 12, 9 through 11. This is amazing. It gets even better. Because, listen, the upper echelon at the time wanted to shut down what Jesus was doing. They were supposedly under the pretense of working for God. They were working against God. And I suspect that if Jesus came down today in bodily form, 
and said to all the preachers and ministers and such, I'm here, that a lot of them, you'd have, a, you'd have to pry them out of the pulpits. Right? So this is what happened. This entrenched religious system was, was, was a real hindrance. And it says this, Then a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus became a little bit, as we would say, of a sideshow. I saw Lazarus die. I saw him and, and, and laying there and all the pallor was gone and, and lividity and, and he was dead. So people wanted to see Lazarus. They, Jesus rose. I got to see this. I got to touch him. I have to see this for myself. But the chief priest took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Pretty impressive. So this is what you have here. As we look at this, Jesus is speaking about himself as the resurrection and the life. It's through him. And number two, the application of the fact that he can raise the dead and anyone who believes in him will not taste death. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? And the best way that I can explain this is walking into just a different room of your house. Looks different. It's decorated different. You know, you got the one room, the living room, you walk into a bedroom. When we die, we don't suffer a horrible process. Who we are, our essence, our being, the thing that, I say this at funerals, the thing that made us unique goes to be with God. It's like stepping from one room into another room. We don't die. We don't taste death if we believe in Jesus Christ as the one who died for our sins. Now, I read a, a post, or a, a, it was a post from a, an atheist on Facebook a few days ago, And he talked about how we Christians were that we had to believe in something like this. Let me just repackage it for him. I would say this, that we have a truth that's so impressive. We serve a God that has the power to raise the spirit. And we're talking about this also, also to raise the body. It's such an exciting truth that we want to hold on to it. Who would want to be separated from that? I certainly wouldn't. I think I'm a pretty sturdy guy, but I tell you, in my quiet time, I'm there. I want to be in his arms. When I die, I want to be in his bosom. I want to rest in him. So this is an awesome truth that we get to hold on to. Not something that was made up. And we're going to go into that. In Mark 8.31, Jesus spoke about the resurrection before it happened. He spoke about his death, burial, and resurrection many times in Scripture. In Matthew 12, Jesus even likens his experience to be buried and to go through that three-day process between his death, burial, and resurrection, and he likens it to the prophet Jonah who experienced what he experienced in the great fish for three days. Can we call ourselves Christians if we don't believe in a teaching that Jesus affirmed is true and said over and over and over and over again? Can we? I think the problem with American culture is there's so much noise. There's so many videos. There's so many books. There's so many false teachers out there that they get confused. And they come to me sometimes, and it's all jumbled up. And i got to say, this is no good. Put that in the waste paper basket. This one's good. Let's streamline this. Now you got a better picture. Yeah, thank you. And we need that sometimes, because there's a lot of noise. Again, we live in the age of, of disinformation. So the second uh, reason here is the incredible order that the, the Apostle Paul, now let's go to him, ascribes to the resurrection. Now this arose, I'll ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4.13, one of my favorite scriptures. I say that about all of them, don't I? <laughs> There's a lot of them. Not really fond of the genealogies, but 
Um, doctrinal stuff is really awesome. So the Apostle Paul now has to write to Thessalonian Christians. This is after the resurrection, after the ascension. And maybe some of those believers, you know, their, their loved ones died and they thought, gee, I think we missed, missed something and they were starting to get worried. So the Apostle Paul comforts them and through his comforting of them, he gives us a powerful understanding of the order of the resurrection. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Now think of the context. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now that's euphemistic for those people have died. We say pass away, pass on, all these different things. But they said fall asleep actually meant the person died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We're not going to go up before them when God is ready to resurrect the whole body and perfect it and join it with the Spirit. You know, I, I'm not really fond of the um, Christoplatonism thought that we uh, die and we, be, we kind of become like these floating white schmoo clouds. And that's not me. I don't dig that. Uh, and the, the cool thing is that's really not reality. That's somebody's thoughts in a certain period of time where they had paintings. But that's not what happens when we die. We have a, a resurrected body that could traverse uh, dimensions and gravity. And I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, Pastor Paul covered that this morning. So 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first in a glorious form. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Take these words and comfort one another. Now, I was always taught that somebody who's really looking to lie about something and deceive, they don't give a lot of details. Why? Because it's a lie. It's not true. You start throwing a lot of details out there, and eventually people start to pick out the inconsistencies and say, ha, you're a liar. A lot of politicians are very vague, and then when they kind of go back on their word, they say, well, I didn't exactly say it like that. They want your vote, but they really don't want to fulfill what they said they want to fulfill. God is different. He says, test me. Look at the detail. Now, you test me. Put all the scripture together and see if there's anything in here that doesn't make sense. I've challenged people to do that, and so far nobody's come back to me with anything. This is what he says. The Apostle Paul tells us, Christ called to the resurrected saints, and this is in our, in our future. We don't know how near it is. His position in the heavens as he's doing so, his type of call to the saints, the order of the resurrection with respect to the ones that have died and the ones that are still left on the earth when it happens, and those left at the time, again, Christ's call, the location of the meeting place of all the saints and the Lord Jesus, and that place is in the clouds of the air, and then ascending into heaven, and we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb and some really other neat stuff as well. The fact that Christ never touches down directly to the earth, which he does in the second coming, and that's another discussion for another time. The rapture, the harpazo in the Greek, is not the same thing as the second coming where he touches down to the Mount of Olives, and that's found in Zechariah. Totally different understanding. But you can see that these puzzle pieces start to come together. 
Right? And by the time we're done, you're going to be like, wow, I didn't realize so much was said about the resurrection. I thought it was just found in a gospel here or there. Third reason is that the resurrection is a type or a model for baptism, for a changed life, and for walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Turn with me to Romans 6, 1 through 9. Romans 6. Please, if you, you know, maybe you, you don't have a lot of exposure to the word, send me an email. Uh, write me some questions. I'd be more than happy to help you through this. It's a, it's a beautiful mosaic that when it's all put together, it's gorgeous. But sometimes the tiles by themselves, if you only have a few tiles of understanding, you've got to get all those tiles put together to see the picture that God is trying to paint here. So Romans 6. I'm actually going to go back two verses in 520. The Apostle Paul says, Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. We sin. When Christ came to the earth, he died for our sins, for the most brutal and filthy of sinners that lived on the earth and live to this day and beyond. Uh, So when sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Even as believers, when we still sin, grace still continues to abound. God still loves us. Right? He still forgives us. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Now he's answering the questions of, I guess, the almost libertinist or the antinomianist, those that say, hey, Jesus died for our sins, let's just do whatever we want because he died for our sins. But he's saying no. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How is it that we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, this is the, the parallel with the death, burial, and resurrection. Watch this. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. See, he keeps going back and forth here. Knowing this, that our old man, the old self, before we knew the Lord, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We don't have to be slaves to sin. We can actually say no to sin. I can tell you, before I was a Christian, I didn't even know it was sin. You know, some people said stuff, and, you know, I would say typical things that people say when they don't want you to bother them. Oh, stop judging me. But I didn't know anything about the word. I didn't know any about God's truth. And I figured, well, I didn't kill anybody. So what I'm doing is fine. You know, those killers, God's going to get them. When I became a believer, I understood what sin was. And I understood that what I do now when I sin is wrong. But I, I can say no to each one of those sins. The odds will say that we'll mess up, you know, a certain percentage of the time. But we still can say no. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Also, the, the penalty that sin puts on us, it kills us and, and also um, buries us and causes us to be judged and to spend eternity in hell without a savior. But that was the former life. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. 
death no longer has dominion over him. So when we get baptized, it's really a picture of death, the old self, burial, and resurrection. We come out of the water in newness of life. It's symbolic of what we are going through on the inside. I'll tell you this too. Let me just, for those of you who say, oh, it's doctrinal. I don't want to hear this on Easter morning. I want to hear something light and airy. Let me just kind of boil it down for you. You know what it means? It means this, that I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. I don't have to. Through the power of Christ, I can clean up my life. Now, a lot of people do it the wrong way. They say, well, I got to clean up my life first. Well, if that was me 20 years ago, I'd still be there because I wouldn't know how to clean it up myself. But when, when Christ is in your life, when he seals you with the Holy Spirit, he's helping you. He's helping us along the way to deal with these issues. Some sins go easily in the beginning. Some sins are a little more stubborn. You know, it's like that stain. It takes a little bit more elbow grease and time to get rid of those. But this is a blessing. This, this model, this resurrection model that we look at in our own lives. Old life, new life. Fourth uh, reason is the detail in the resurrection. Now, Pastor Paul covered this at sunrise service this morning. It was great. It was a great turnout. Uh, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. <laughs> but I will tell you that there's 58 verses in that chapter, and it gives great detail about the resurrection. We can find witnesses to the resurrection. We can find a reason why it's impossible to not believe in the resurrection and calling, call ourselves Christians and the logic that surrounds us. I love logic. When I was in college, I remember one of my classes was logic, reasoning, and persuasion. Even as a kid and a teenager, my dad would buy me a calculator or a watch, and I would always take it apart because I wanted to see what, how it ran. My big problem was I couldn't put it back together, and I got in trouble for it. But we're like little children, even as adults. We want to know why, and this chapter is amazing in the detail that it gives. i just use one, one verse, and then we'll move on to number five. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not risen, and he makes this logical argument that he leads the believers down. If Christ has not risen, you're still dead in your sins. Let me paraphrase that. What good is Christmas without Easter? That's pretty much it. Hey, that's great. God came. He sent his son into the world. That is super. You know, he, he escaped the Herod persecutions and all that, and he grew up and he did miracles and all this stuff. But if he didn't go to the cross, man, we'd be in a lot of trouble right now. Or if he did go to the cross and didn't rise from the dead, we'd still be in trouble, as the Apostle Paul says. Because I'll tell you this, that I didn't get the benefit of hanging out with Jesus on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. I didn't get to see him multiply the, the loaves and the fish. But what I did get, what I did get, and this, this helps me understand, is that 2,000 years ago, he died for my sins, knowing that I was going to be born later in human history, and in addition to dying for my sins, he died for my future sins. That's what I get out of it, and that's what we get out of it. These details of the resurrection, how it affects us personally, personally. The fifth point, a better resurrection. Turn with me to Hebrews 11.35. I think by now some of you are saying, yeah, gee, wow, look at all the the different angles, look at the different authors, look at the different time periods. Um, and we're not done yet. We're going to get into the Old Testament too. But I promise I won't keep you here for an hour if you've got a turkey in the oven or something like that. <laughs> this basically, the author of Hebrews talks about uh, some amazing things, heroes of faith. And he basically tells us in one verse how some people, because of their faith, 
were redeemed, or, or excuse me, scratch that, how because of their faith they were saved in a temporal sense from, um, you know, trial of fire, or persecution, whatever. And in the same sentence, how some, because of their faith, actually were not delivered. It wasn't God's will. But they were looking for a better resurrection. So let me read verse 35. It says, Women receive their dead raised to life again. And we've seen that in the scripture, both old and new. And others were tortured. Other believers were tortured. Heroes of faith, not accepting deliverance, maybe because they said, if you recount God, we'll let you go. And they said, no, I can't do that. That they might obtain a better resurrection. So Christians submitted to whatever the authorities dished out. The only way out, the only route of escape was to say, I deny God, I deny Jesus. And they said, no, I can't do that. So basically what happened is they ended up losing their life. But they were still heroes of faith because they were looking for a better resurrection. They didn't look at this life and say, this is all that there is. They knew that they had a whole eternity waiting for them. Now that's faith. And that's why the world could look at them and say, oh, they were failures. They were losers. No, we look at them and say, for them to give up their life at that point, they are heroes of faith because they knew that God had something better for them. And it's hard for us to understand if we're, if we really don't... It's hard for us to understand because we live in this world and, hey, it's the here and now. My flesh, my face, my bank account, it's all tangible. But we have to trust him for what he's going to provide for us after this dispensation ends. Now, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have a different vantage point of Christ's life. Some put in things that the others didn't put in because it was their personal experience. We talked about this last Sunday. Um, Witnesses to a a crime or something, they they write the report from their vantage point. However, all of them describe the resurrection of Christ, which brings us to our sixth point, that the resurrection was a focal point to the gospel writers. It was a focal point. This is something everybody needs to pay attention to is basically what they were saying. They all speak in some manner of the disciples' physical handling of Christ's resurrected body. And they didn't, a lot of them didn't believe in the beginning. Even Thomas, you know, I could just picture him seeing Jesus, and, and Jesus said, here, I, I know you still don't believe. Put your hand in the holes that the nails made. Put your hand in the holes in my side that the spear was thrust through. It's really me. I'm just in a resurrected form. The disciples also, in these Gospels, speak about their deniability um, of the resurrected Christ until touching him and spending time with him. And if we look at the book of Acts, we find out that Christ spent 40 days after being resurrected doing ministry, and then he ascended into heaven. Why is this so important? Because if you read Fox's book of martyrs, you'll find that, especially in the first few centuries of the Roman Empire, Christianity wasn't popular, which, you know, you could say in Western culture, it definitely is a lot more popular, although that's starting to change. And they actually would lose their life for being just Christians, not bothering anybody. But what happened was, you see, if you're in their situation and you know, maybe through a a gunshot or maybe through a car accident, it's a horrible thing, or maybe the doctor's saying, you got like a week to live. In our last moments of life, what would we be thinking about? Would we really care about the addition we just put on our house? Would we really care about the second SUV or boat that we were looking to buy? Would we? The answer is no. There's only two things that if we were faced with death, as the early Christians were, two things 
that would be important to us. Here's the first one. When my heart stops beating and, and you know, my brain waves, they all flatline and there's no activity, where am I going? Because I'm going to be there for a long time. Now, if you're a believer and you believed in Christ, you know that you're going to a good place. Remember, you're walking into the ne- that next room. Here's the second thing that we would be asking ourselves. Will I ever see my loved ones again? Are they coming here too? Now, that puts everything in perspective. For those of you who have had a near-death experience, you realize that all the pettiness, all the things you try to amass in this world, really doesn't mean anything. Everyone's mind goes to two things, and those are the two things that they go to. Focus. The gospel writers wanted us to focus on the resurrection. Now, Revelation is the seventh point, and we have two more to go after this. The last book of the Bible, written decades after Christ's resurrection. He comes to the Apostle John, uh, Jesus does, and he reveals his post-resurrection self to John and also the church. Write these things. Everything you see, write. And John did. And this is great. This is a great study of eschatology or end times prophecies because there's a lot in here. This is the culmination of, of you know, God's plan, his redemption. Everything comes to a head. And a lot of this stuff is in our near future uh, in Revelation. Let me read to you three verses. Revelation 1, 17 through 19. Verse 17. John says, And when I saw him, capital M, or capital H, the Lord Jesus Christ, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Man, this is the resurrected Christ, glorified form. John's a little, he's on sensory overload, which any of us would be if we saw this in real time. So he falls down, probably faints or whatever. Jesus touches him with his right hand and says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, in the Old Testament, nobody could take that without being stoned for blasphemy. Only God could take that title, I am the first and I am the last. I was before all things and I will be after all things, I am eternal. I am. That's what he says he is. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Wow. He even, even his, again, the crucifixion, dying for our sins, I believe is going to be a mark that we see for all of eternity. He even says in this form to John, I died. I was killed. I was crucified, but I did it for, you know, your sins, and I am alive forevermore. Not going to happen again. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Past, present, and future. We also find in the book of Revelation that the wicked will be resurrected by God's power. But they will stand before God in the white throne judgment. They will be judged and they will be damned for all eternity. I believe God gives everyone a chance to have their sins dealt with. They refused. They had other things in mind. So the seventh point about the resurrection we find in Revelation is the resurrection is final. It's also eternal in its implications and its impact. It's no accident God allowed Revelation to be written last. It's no uh, accident that God allowed John the Apostle to live as long as he did to be able to receive this revelation, the only one who wasn't martyred, and to speak about end-time things that we all can enjoy. If we're scared of the book of Revelation, it's because we don't have a close enough relationship with the Lord to know that he's, he loves us, he's our Father, and 
he's, he's basically showing us history before it happens, but he shows us where all the believers will be, and it's, it's in a good place. The question is, are we eternally focused, or are we completely tethered to this world? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. I find it an enigma that there are those who are very accomplished, maybe start their own business. They get promoted 10 times. You know, they're so high in their field. They're, they're legends at some point. You know, they're just, they're just so, you know, they're, perf- they're perfection in their field. And then when you ask them a question about heaven, oh, I just hope I get my foot in the door. Really? Why do we, a place that we're going to spend eternity, and, and that's, that's, I guess that's my job <laughs> to say this, why are we so focused on things here? Why do we strive so hard? Sports, our jobs, our, our professions. But then when it comes to heaven, the attitude is, I just want to get my foot in the door. No, 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 not me. I want to get my foot in the door, and I also want God to be pleased with me and say, Joe, you know what? Keep the door open when you come in because there's a bunch of people behind you that because of me through you, they're getting into heaven. Oh, yeah, keep that door open. Oh, let me see how many there are. I don't know. Maybe I discipled somebody and that person became a great evangelist overseas. I don't know. That's what I want to be part of. I want to be part of the great harvest. And this is the inspiration that I'm talking to you about. And quite frankly, if you're a C&E, Christmas and Easter, I want you to be, and I'm not knocking anybody, I want you to be inspired too. This is not why we go to church because it's something that's an obligation, it's something we have to do, or because I've got to make good with God because I haven't been to church in six months. We go to church so that we can be enriched, so that we can be edified. So we could go out there. You don't think that there's problems? I mean, gee, last Sunday I prayed about a teenager who committed suicide. You see this all the time, uh, of an accomplished man and father of of a few who committed suicide. This is a sad, sad world. And and the only way that we're going to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, bigger than life, is if we've got God and we're working in his field and he's empowering us to do it. That, to me, is exciting. Amen. (laughs) Eight. This brings me to the Old Testament, and this is really cool, because a lot of people say, well, where is this stuff in the Old Testament? Let's turn to Daniel 12, verse 2. Daniel 12, verse 2. This is the prophecy of the resurrection. This is before Jesus. Now, remember, in the Old Testament... Okay, without the revelation of Jesus Christ and the New Testament commentarying on the Old Testament and making it clear, in the Old Testament, a lot of these concepts were murky. Now, Peter, in his, in his work, tells us that the angels and even the prophets, as the prophets wrote this stuff down, they didn't have the full picture until Christ came. So they're in heaven with God, and it's not fully re- even revealed until Christ came and started elucidating all this stuff. So a lot of this stuff's going to be fuzzy. It's going to be murky. The prophets would have told you the same thing, and Peter tells us that in his, in his letters. So it says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a prophecy of the resurrection. They're dead. They're dust. All their body parts went back into the soil and were reassimilated. But they're going to awake and be resurrected. Some, the the evil and the good. They both go to their own places. I want to read Psalm 1610 to you. 
Psalm 16.10. Here's another one. Again, the Davidic Psalms are awesome because they're about David, they're about his personal relationship with God, but they're also prophetic. And again, David, he's writing this stuff down and it's from his heart and he doesn't even really know the implications of what he's writing. It says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or in the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What happens when we die? It's not pretty. I've seen it more too many times than I like to think about in my other profession. And when you go to a funeral, they try to dress the body up and all, but it's not pretty when a person decays. However, it says, you will not leave me in the realm of the dead. You will not allow your Holy One to see that corruption. And that prophecy was also about Jesus. So what, how else could we... And Psalm forty-nine, fifteen is another one. I'm just not going to go through all of them. But the eighth point is that the resurrection began in the Old Testament. I love that. We have a lot of Jewish people here that are part of our fellowship that believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And they're very friendly to Calvary chapels because we don't believe in replacement theology where the church now dominates and all those prophecies for the Jewish people have been null and void and they've been given to the church. That's not fair and that's not God. He promised it to them and there's still promises for the Jewish people that have to be fulfilled. So check it out. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. We've gone through so many of these. The suffering servant, his substitutionary death on the cross, um, and even in Genesis. Hebrews 11:19 tells us that pretty much that um, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, that was a picture of of, of the resurrection, how he was going to do it, God spared, God provided a sacrifice in his place, and you see the resurrection of Christ all over that. Verse 9, extra-biblical sources. Now understand this, I feel that I, I do my homework, and I try to do it very well. I know that there are skeptics, and they say, well, that's just the Bible. Let's see what else you have. I have some other stuff. But the point is that, remember, the Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors over three different languages, arguably over a period of greater than 2,000 years. So when you say the Bible, it's only because in modern technology we put a binder on it, we translate stuff, put it on a piece of paper, onion skin, slap it together, glue it down the spine, and say, here's the Bible. But every time you read a different book, you're going into another land, you're going into another culture, another language, another people, people who didn't even know each other. You understand? But just for the sake of the skeptics, let me... And I've done some research on my own, but uh, Mark Eastman, the atheist doctor who came to faith that I told you about, he really chronicles this stuff succinctly in the book, The Search for the Messiah. Now, this book, um, probably be the best $11, $12 you ever spent. It's a fantastic book. You know, he went on his journey to believe in Jesus Christ, and he wants everybody else to know what he experienced. So we start with Flavius Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews. Many of you are familiar with these works, but basically this is the 18th book, chapter 3. He was a Roman historian, led a very interesting life, lived on both sides of the fence, arguably not a Christian. 
Again, he's a secular guy. He says, There was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. Move on. He appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Pretty good for a secular guy. Now, just... I'll go through just a few of these. Josephus also speaks about John the Baptist in Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 5, paragraph 2. John the Baptist, um, this is fascinating. In book 20, chapter 9, paragraph 1, he speaks about the martyrdom of James, Jesus' half-brother, who didn't believe in Jesus because he grew up with him. But when Jesus was resurrected, all of a sudden he was a believer. And he goes out there on fire, speaking about the resurrection, and he was... He was, no, he wasn't crucified. He was stoned by the powers that be. And Josephus says this. He therefore caused James, the brother of Jesus, uh, Ananias did, uh, who was called Christ and several others to appear before this hastily assembled council and pronounced upon them the sentence of death by stoning. This is right out of the book of, the, book of Acts. You know, people think that the Bible was written in a vacuum. Not true. Um, Julius Africanus, a church father referencing Thallus, a historian uh, in the middle of the first century who didn't believe. Now check this out. He tries to uh, explain away the darkness that existed while Christ was hanging on the cross, how God made that darkness. Was it three hours? Now here's the funny thing. If you don't believe in something and you keep trying to explain it away, what you're doing is you're giving more attention to it. So that's what these guys have been doing. Philippon, a sixth century secular historian, in his book, The Olympiads, he spoke about, spoke about the historical existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Tacitus, promoted to governor of Asia, he's speaking about the Nero persecutions and how the Christians, no matter what they did to them, they just kept multiplying, even though they were, he was, they were being killed. And Emperor Hadrian, in his discussion with Serenius Granianus, you can all look this up, it's all secular history. It's Roman history. You can't believe in the fuzzy helmets and, the, and the, you know, the armor and the swords and not believe in what they wrote in addition to the fuzzy helmets and the, the armor and the swords, right? I mean, they were very prideful people. They wrote about everything they did. Emperor Hadrian and this um, Serenius Granianus, uh, he speaks about... Uh, he, basically, they, there's so many of them. I'm not gonna, you can look at this later if you like. Nine... The resurrection was so powerful that it had an incredible effect on the Roman Empire and couldn't be whitewashed. No matter how, how much they... They were killing their own citizens just to get rid of Christianity, and they couldn't stop it. So some emperors just said, you know what, we're spending too many resources killing these people. You know, let's, let's allow it. Amen from the little one in the fifth row back there. <laughs> See? I'm just going to leave you with this. Every year that I've been a Christian, around this time of year, coincidentally, somebody comes out with some discovery or something or some book that supposedly is going to discredit Christianity, and they've all turned out to be frauds. Not one of them has stood the test of scrutiny, even by their own archaeologists or their own scholars. The more people say, look, we're, we're going to disprove it, the more attention is drawn to it. Brothers and sisters, this leaves you with a question. What do I do when I'm face-to-face with the fact 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you realize there's more evidence about Jesus and his resurrection than a lot of the works from Shakespeare and stuff that we, that we respect and believe in today? You ask any American, Shakespeare, oh yeah, he lived. He wrote this book and that book. You realize that there's more documents that affirm Jesus Christ and what he did than there are Shakespearean doctrine, uh, documents? Do your research. You really want to know the truth? You should, because your eternity depends on this. If you don't know the Lord, follow him today. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. It's that simple. Have your spirit resurrected on Resurrection Sunday. If you're a believer, and maybe you haven't been walking the way you should, put the idols away. Put the Joabs away. Trust in Jesus Christ. Make a full commitment to him today on Resurrection Sunday. And only then, brothers and sisters, can we make a difference in this world. I know that every one of us know somebody in our peer groups, in our family, in our workplace, somebody that's on the edge, somebody that's going to snap. How do I reach them? What do I do? If you're a believer, you ask God, and he'll do the work. He'll do the heavy lifting for you. That's why we do what we do. And the more of us that are immersed in this difficult culture, problems with our peers, the more we need to get into this. Because that's where the source of our strength comes from. And one day, when, the, when we walk through the door and the Lord says, well done, thy good and faithful servant, he's going to say, hold the door open. There's a few people behind you. Let's pray.